Father, we're so grateful for the opportunity we have every Lord's Day to come together. <clears throat> and we're especially grateful for this class and we acknowledge how critical it is. Um, it has such an influence on how we bring up our children. And so will you bless these moments that we spend together. We confess that we need all of the wisdom that you can give us. We need help as we try to take the principles of your word and apply them to our children in, in their particular stages of life. And will you help us to do that? And all to the end, that our children may someday be converted. And so we ask you to work in their hearts and draw them to yourself. Help us now in these moments together. Be our teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> about a 30-second review. We are talking last time about the role of parents. And it begins with this. We are the parents. That's not always clear in our culture, but we are the parents. We're the primary evangelists in the lives of our kids. We're the primary intercessors for them. We are the primary role models for them. And we're the good ones or bad ones, but we are their role models. We are the primary teachers of them. And we spent some time talking about teaching. Janet Cliff's way over here. We spent some time talking about characteristics of our teaching, when we teach our children, our teaching must be urgent and earnest, appropriately reasoned, attractive, persistent, and lifelong, unified mom and dad on the same page, observant and opportunistic, meaning we take advantage of those gazillion spontaneous moments that arise, that get a child's attention, and that's a teaching opportunity for us. And we... we Ended up with this last time, our teaching must be aimed at the heart of our kids. I'm going to pick up with that today, and I've got a handout up here that will give you um, the information we're going to cover today, and it will give you more information on um, how this teaching is aimed at our heart. These books especially have been helpful in understanding that we're not just trying to mold and shape their outward behavior, because everything is heart-driven. And we've got to get to their hearts. So uh, Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, his, he and his wife's book, Instructing a Child's Heart, and particularly Ginger Hubbard on Don't Make Me Count to Three. She takes the principles that Ted Tripp laid out with maybe more words than he actually needed to use. <laughs> okay? But she takes the principles of shepherding a child's heart and brings it down to nuts and bolts where you see how that works with your kids, with illustrations and examples. So um, I highly recommend those resources. Let me give you just a little bit of a distillation of the principles in those books and then root them in what the Bible teaches about the heart. Uh, Proverbs is full of this. I, I've, I've picked three references from Proverbs. There are dozens that have to do with our hearts. Okay, let your heart... <clears throat> keep my commandments, write them on the tablet of your heart. He didn't say write them on a, on, a, on a little board that you hang in front of your eyes so that you see them. 
Write them on the tablet of your heart. Keep them in the midst of your heart. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And if, if the principles of the Word of God are not rooted in our hearts, then what are we going to have? A bunch of little Pharisees, right? With just outward stuff. So Proverbs is replete with an emphasis on getting to the heart of things. What Jesus teaches in the New Testament underscores that very pointedly. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, etc., etc. It's also true that out of the heart come kind and loving and selfless and helpful words. That's true too. But Jesus is trying to make a point here. And, and the point from Scripture is that everything is heart-driven. When we use the word heart here, we're talking about what drives your thoughts and words and behavior. It's the operating system. It's always running. And that, and that produces all the stuff on the outside. So when Johnny says something really horrible and awful to his little sister and you nail him for it in the right way. And he said, I didn't mean to say that. Oh, yes, you did. You most certainly did, because where did those words come from? Well, I heard somebody at school saying, yeah, but guess where they got rooted? Right here. And they came out of here. Everything is heart-driven, which tells us we really have got to get to the hearts of our kids, if all the doctor ever did was treat the outward symptom and never got to the root cause, we'd say he was a pretty lousy doctor. But that's often what we do as parents. Let's just get this behavior under control. Jesus said, you blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may be clean also. We've got to get to the inside of the cup. Your children need you to do more than announce failure, instill guilt, attach a consequence, and walk away. That is easy to do. That, instill, announce failure, instill guilt, attach consequences, well, that's easy to do. It's a whole different ballgame to get to what underlies all of that. Um, Ted Tripp gives the illustration of a shut-up jar. Some of you have heard this before. Anybody know this story? No? Besides my wife, she's heard it a million times. Okay, so this family was having trouble saying shut up. The kids said it all the time. Mom and dad said it now and then. And so we got to stop this rude talk. There are kinder ways to express your thoughts about what somebody is saying. Say, shut up. So they put a jar on the table. And every time somebody said shut up, they had to put a dollar in the jar. Mom and dad put a few bucks in there. The kids put several dollars in there. And after about two weeks, they had a hundred bucks in this jar. <laughs> but then they quit saying shut up. I don't know if they ran out of money or what, but they quit saying shut up. So dad said, let's celebrate. So he took the hundred bucks. They all went out for a movie and a pizza and came home and we got this licked. Guess what happened the next day? when the shut-up jar was no longer in sight. Shut up. All they did was engage in a level of behaviorism 
They just controlled what was happening on the outside. They never got to hear. They never got to the heart. If we seldom, if we never or seldom talk to our kids about where their behavior came from, about what they desperately need for their behavior to really change, then we miss the heart of it all. So let me talk for just a minute about what, what it looks like when we do go after the heart. Let's say your kids are fighting over some toy. I, you're, I know yours never look like this, okay? This is just illustrative, right? So they're fighting over some toy, and what's the question we ask first? Who had it first? <laughs> that misses the heart. We sailed right by the heart and went, who had it first? What's the heart issue going on here with both of these kids? It's selfishness. Are you, are, you, are you guys behaving, either one of you behaving like you love your brother? Or either one of you acting like a peacemaker? What does the Bible say about your selfish attitudes? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's a biblical principle. Who had a first? No. What's going on here, guys? What's, what's, driving, what's driving your behavior? Say it's selfishness. And, and where do we need to get selfishness taken care of? With Jesus. And we've got to have conversations with Jesus. Confession and repentance and, and turning away and asking Jesus to help us. You have a son. I, illustration only, okay? This never happened to you guys. You have a son who's mercilessly teasing his sister. And his words begin to sting and he doesn't stop and soon she's in tears and then he ramps it up a level because now she's a crybaby. And he's letting her have it up one side and down the other. What do you do? If I ever hear you talk like that again to your sister, you'll be grounded for a week. Now go up there and apologize and don't let me ever hear that again. Period. What have we done? We've tried to clean the outside of the cup. And we haven't tried to clean the inside. That, that's easy to do. What should we do? Well, what's the heart issue going on here with your son? You need, to, you need to probe that with some questions. Is he angry over something she did or said to him? Is he envious or jealous over something she received that he didn't and so he feels like he's got to take her down? It could have been just plain meanness and his sinful heart supplied his sinful tongue with plenty of ammo to take her down. But what was driving that? So what you have is a prime opportunity to help your son understand the connection between heart and tongue. And while he's still responsible for every word that comes out of his mouth, it's his heart that's the problem and that needs to be changed. And yes, Punishment is coming for the way you treated your sister. And yes, you must apologize to her. But your greatest need is the gospel. And the cleansing that only comes from the blood of Christ. What I didn't tell you is that when she couldn't take it anymore, she took, she grabbed his favorite video game, smashed it on the floor, stomped on it, and ran off to the room and slammed the door behind her. But you got, you got brother taken care of. If you'd ever talk like that, I'd be grounded for a week. 
No. We still got to deal with the smashed video game and the slam door. That wasn't just some outward reaction. What was that? That was the response of her heart to the way her brother was treating her. So there was, there was, there was revenge and, and a lack of self-control going on with sister. Those were the heart issues that prompted the smashed game and the slam door and running off in a huff. And we might be tempted to overlook the sister because the brother got it started, or at least that's the way it appeared that he got it started. We don't know what she did to prompt his teasing. And so we've still got to deal with sister, and we may have to have sister save her allowance and buy him a new video game and apologize for her own lack of self-control. But we got, we, got to, we got to get past this, just dealing with what happens on the outside. A couple of balancing statements here. Heart discussions with your children will take on greater significance as your children grow. Don't try to do this with your 18-month-old, okay? <laughs> Don't you understand that everything comes out of your heart? and That's going to go nowhere. So they'll take on greater significance as your children grow. Not every instance... Not every single instance of sinful behavior calls for a 20-minute discussion. Okay? This has taken place in the crucible of real life. And sometimes, yes, sometimes you've got to deal with what's happening and move on. But if that's all we ever do, we're missing the boat. And if, if on those occasions where we just deal with the surface because we're in the, we're in the middle of whatever and... We, we, we don't have, we can't do this. We can't stop life and have a 15 minute heart discussion. But when you get home, you come back to that and have that heart discussion. And uh, let me say too that um, if, having, if having these heart discussions with your children and getting past what happened on the surface, if that's new to you, I don't know how you do that. Let me tell you, it's not rocket science, okay? Do you know your own heart? Hopefully. And so many of the behavioral issues we have to deal with can be reduced to a few basic heart issues. It's not like we've got to have a degree in psychology to figure this out, okay? The Bible has a lot to say about pride and the need for humility. That's a, that's a, that's a principle that covers a gazillion things. Okay, the Bible says a lot about anger and the need for self-control, the fear of man as opposed to the fear of God. It's the fear of man that often drives so much of our inappropriate behavior. Love of self instead of loving others. Greed instead of contentment or laziness instead of diligence or revenge instead of trusting God to take care of whatever just happened. I would venture to say that 90 to 95% of all the issues you deal with with your kids when you're trying to get to the heart can be reduced to one of these things right here. So I, th- this, is not, this is not rocket science. We, ha- we have to know our own hearts. We have to be willing to deal with our own hearts. And that will help us to deal with the hearts of our kids and the issues that are driving their, their speech and their behavior. And all these hard discussions should take us back again and again to the gospel. 
Um, please, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave these. There's more detail in these handouts up here. There's, there's a summary of what I just covered, and there's a couple extra pages of stuff. So please just grab one of those um, after class is over. Now, we're going to shift gears um, just a bit, and I want to consider the nature of our children. Who are they? Before we jump into that, I, let, me, let me take a couple of minutes to give you an encouragement in the midst of parenting. There are days that will wear you out and make your question, make you question your fitness to parent. Anybody ever felt like that? You're making it difficult for me to be the parent I always imagined I would be. It's your fault. Wrong. Okay. But there are days we feel like that, yes? Yes. There's a way to view those tough days and a way to think about them that gives us hope and encouragement. It's actually pretty simple. Parenting is one of the most kingdom-oriented, gospel-focused endeavors of all of God's redemptive activities. Don't ever lose sight of that. Parenting is one of the most kingdom-oriented, gospel-focused endeavors in all of God's redemptive activities. You're not preaching to a congregation of a thousand. You're not heading up some worldwide mission organization. You're not laying your life down on some remote mission field. You're not denying yourself for the sake of an earthquake-devastated orphanage in Haiti. I don't think anybody in here is doing that. But you're laying your life down every day and you're taking up your cross and following Jesus every day and you're denying yourself every day for the sake of your precious children and their souls. And if that is not a self-denying activity, I don't know what is. But, but you're doing that every single day. You're pouring yourself into the molding and shaping their character. You're laboring to help them see their sins. You point them over and over again to the Savior as the only hope. You're living out the realities of redemption in front of their eyes every day. You're showing them what it means to follow Christ every day. Authentically, you're showing them what it means to bow to His Lordship. You're showing them what repentance looks like. I hope you're showing your kids what repentance looks like. You're showing them what faith, sometimes really little faith, looks like. You're showing them what it is to own up to sin. You're showing them what it means to fall down and get back up a thousand times, what it means to do the right thing when you don't feel like it. You're showing them the kind of grace there is in the gospel. And you're doing all that in the daily routine of diapers and squabbles and messes and owies and conflicts and selfishness. You're not doing it perfectly, but you're doing it authentically, genuinely, flaws and all. And if that means that your days don't go as planned, some things get bumped down a few priority levels, some things don't get done until very late or they just don't get done, then it does not mean you failed as a mom or dad. You've been laying your life down and taking up your cross and denying yourself for the sake of the kingdom. John Piper says that practically all parents enter parenting feeling inadequate and leave parenting feeling guilty. There's so much more they could have done. But as long as we are fallen parents in a fallen world with fallen children, it ain't going to be perfect. Okay? That's why the gospel gives us so much hope. There's forgiveness for every failure. 
There's forgiveness for every transgression of our kids. There's forgiveness for every failure of mine as a parent. And there's grace to get back up and do it again and again and a million times over. There's grace in the gospel for that. There's grace for every need. And Piper says, the bottom line is not our parenting. The bottom line is God. Does God call us to faithful, diligent, Christ-like parenting? Of course He does. Does His rescue of your children hang on your parenting? No. And how glad we are that the answer to that question is no. It hangs on God. Does that let us off the hook? No. No. But where's our hope for our kids? It's in God. In the glory and beauty and wonder of the gospel. I hope that will encourage you in the days that are really hard and difficult. That you're engaging in one of the most gospel-oriented, kingdom-focused, redemptive activities on the planet. You're living the gospel out in front of your kids day after day. Okay, the nature of our children, who are they? Who are they? Little sinners, that's who they are. (laughs) Yes, but we'll get to that. That's what we often think of first. Because that's what we deal with. So often, okay? But we gotta get this, we gotta get this first. They are unique, individual, image bearers of God. That's plain from Genesis 1. The Bible is clear that in distinction from all the other living things God made, man and man alone uniquely bears the image of God. It's also plain that after the fall into sin, that image was not lost, it was affected and marred. To be sure, but it was not lost. Sinful man is still made in the image of God. But what does that mean? It means that our children have a God consciousness to which we may and must appeal. It means that our children have personality and imagination and creativity, the capacity to think, reason, feel, choose, act, communicate, dream, and create. Oh my goodness. Where did our kids come up with all that stuff? It's because they're made in the image of God. Child, think of What kind of an imagination does God have? Try to describe that. In in 17 billion words or less. Where do our kids get that stuff? Where do they come up with the goofy, crazy, oddball things they come up with? Dad, 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 look at this. What is that? <laughs> They're made in the image of God. And they express that creativity and imagination in all sorts of ways. It means that they have a moral consciousness. I think I missed one. They have a moral consciousness, the capacity to know right from wrong. 
It means they have a capacity to know God. It means that they're real persons. It means they were made for worship. They were made with a huge capacity for awe and wonder. They will worship something or someone. It's in them because they're made in the image of God. Look how our children love heroes or heroines. Look how amazed they are early on at the simplest things. Grandpa, 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 the snow is melting. Yeah, I know, I've seen it a gazillion times. No, Grandpa, Grandpa, the snow is melting. Look, you're right, it is melting. Don't don't squash our kids. Their eyes get wide at the simplest things. And we must not miss the opportunity to show them the most wonderful things in the gospel, in the person of Jesus, and what he did for sinners. Talk about eyes getting wide. It takes special grace. I get this, okay? It takes special grace for our eyes, our kids' eyes to get wide at the gospel. But they have that capacity in them for awe and wonder. And we need to show them the most awful. You know what that word means? Full of awe the most awful and wonderful things in all the world. And that's the gospel. So what does that mean? It means that our kids are not the result of random evolutionary chaos. It means they're not animals who live by instinct and should be trained to simply jump through so many hoops every time we crack the whip. It means that they have meaning and worth and value and a reason for, and purpose for existence. It means that their reason for existence is to glorify God whose image they bear by loving, knowing, and serving Him. And yes, sin has stained all of that, but it has not erased the image of God in our children. It is sin that causes us to live for ourselves and to worship things other than God and to love ourselves more than Him. But sin is not the end of the story. Redemption is. And what God is up to, among other things, is restoring the image of God in us so that we more accurately reflect Him. Being made in the image of God means that our kids are not junk. They're not objects to be abused, beaten, exploited, used, ignored, mistreated, neglected, discarded, or aborted. And that has major implications. Think about it. There's major implications for how we speak to our children. You just talk that way to an image bearer of God? Really? How we discipline them? How we teach them? How we listen to them? How we raise them? In the dark recesses of every, every mother's womb, God wove every one of our children together just the way He wanted them to be with the precise features He designed for them, with the unique personality He planned for them, with with the temperament and makeup he wanted them to have, with just this much of mom and this much of dad and this much of great Aunt Susie. Yeah, she got in there too. Where did our grandchildren get red hair? <laughs> that was way deep down in the bottom of the gene pool, and that thing swam to the surface and 
got into three of our grandchildren. Oh my goodness. He, he, God was weaving them together. And He stamped His own image on it all. And on the day of the, their birth, it was as if He said, here is a precious gift for you. Raise him or her well for me. If that's what we understand our children to be, then isn't child abuse inconceivable? Isn't screaming at our children inconceivable? Isn't abortion inconceivable? Isn't ignoring our children inconceivable? Daddy, 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 daddy. Daddy, daddy, and they're pulling on your shirt and they're pat like daddy, 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 daddy. And it's like we don't even hear. We we turn it off. Yeah, do our kids need to learn? There's a time to speak and a time not. Yes, 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 yes. But shouldn't understanding that our kids are image bearers of God. And they want our attention. And we don't give it to them. It's inconceivable. That we would devote more time and attention to some inanimate object. A car, a motorcycle, a boat, a computer, a house, a hobby, golf clubs, a phone, fitness, Facebook, whatever. It's inconceivable that we wouldn't have time to spend with them. It's inconceivable that we wouldn't keep our promises to them. That we wouldn't pray for them, storming the throne of grace for their conversion. They're each, single one of them, unique individual image bearers of God. And what is it that makes them valuable and important? What is it that makes our kids worth something? What is it that gives them worth and value and dignity? It is not how much cool stuff they own or we buy for them. It is not how pretty your face is or how strong his muscles are. It is not who their friends are. It is not how many girls a guy can get. It's not how many boys want her. It's not how good their grades are. It's not how popular they are. It's not whether he or she's a good athlete, a good singer, a good actor in the school play, whether or not they make the honor roll. It's not whether they take dance lessons or whether they play soccer or horseback riding or do gymnastics or play the piano. It's not whether they succeed to give some worth and value and dignity. It's not how many gifted and talented programs they're in. It's not how many scholarships they'll earn. It's not whether they have all their parts and all the right chromosomes when they come out of the womb. Do we really understand that? What gives them worth and value and dignity is that God made them in his own image. And he doesn't make junk. In his own image, he created them. They're not a blob of cells to be tweaked to produce a certain IQ or a certain look or a certain ability. They're image bearers of God. 
And our children will learn that from us by what we teach them. They will learn that from us by how we react when they fail. They'll learn it by what we say when they succeed. They'll learn it by what they see is important to us. What, where, where we place our value and worth and dignity. It's in that six-bedroom, four-bath house I just bought. No. They'll see it by what they see us placing our value on. And they'll see it by what we teach them about being image bearers of God. That's what they are. They're image bearers of God. They're also moldable, pliable creatures. God didn't make them like rocks. Okay, some of you think he did. No, God did not make them like rocks. Nor did he send them with all the software preloaded. He made them moldable, pliable, impressionable, teachable creatures with a tremendous capacity for the intake of information. Why are there so many appeals in Proverbs to the Son to listen, learn, receive my sayings, hear my instruction, keep my commandments, incline your ear, and listen to rebuke? Why? Excuse me, because they're so pliable and, and, and impressionable and teachable. Why are we to caution our children about their friends? Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man lest you, learn, lest, lest you learn his ways. Why do we caution it? Because they're impressionable. They're moldable, pliable creatures. They're teachable. And, and our fingers are always on the clay. And guess what? Our fingers are not the only ones on the clay. Our culture is pushing on the clay all the time. And their friends are pushing on the clay. And their school teachers are pushing on the clay. And the people in the neighborhood are pushing on the clay. Our kids are so moldable and pliable and impressionable. This has major implications for the way we deal with our children. Have you ever caught yourself Almost mid-sentence as you're about to let your child have it for the way they're speaking to their brother or sister when you realize you're talking the same way. Guilty? Anybody else in here? We We have two honest people. I saw two hands. A kindergarten, Ted Tripp gives this illustration. A kindergarten teacher was having trouble keeping Johnny in the classroom and every time Johnny got frustrated, he just got up and walked out of the room. And she couldn't keep him in the room. So she called the parents in for a conference, and the conference was not going particularly well. And Johnny's dad suddenly got up and walked out of the room. Connection? Between Johnny and I staying in the room and Johnny's dad getting up and walking out of the room when it wasn't going well. We're, we're constantly pushing and pulling on the clay. They're constantly on the impress of our example and our words and, and so many things around them. 
And that's true whether we are consciously molding or whether we are passively, unconsciously molding them. I'm going to run through a list. Okay? Stay with me. We're making an impression on them when we're sitting in front of the TV. We're making an impression on them when we come home and sit behind the newspaper. Okay, that's, a, that's an old statement. Where's my, oh, my phone's up here. It's recording. When we're sitting in front of our phones or our computer screens. We make an impression on them when we sacrificially help our spouse. We make an impression on them on our day off. We make an impression on them during public worship. We make an impression on them when we answer the phone or when we hang it up after a particularly aggravating call. Ah, crack my screen again. We're making an impression. When we're driving down the road and we respond to the other drivers who are always more careless than we are. You just... Buddy, what do you think you're doing? You do, I just made an impression on my son. We make an impression on them when the cop pulls us over. We make an impression on them when the news is bad. We make an impression on them when we don't think they're listening. We make an impression on them when our patience runs out. We're making an impression on them all the time. Because our children are moldable and pliable. That's the way they come out of the womb. Our fingers are always on the clay. The wheel is always spinning. And the older they get apart from special saving grace, the harder and drier the clay becomes. But guess what God does? He takes hard hearts of stone and replaces them with hearts of flesh. God does that. You may think your child is beyond any molding and shaping. You may be persuaded to your own grief that your child heart, child's heart is as hard as stone. But it's not too hard for God to soften. And they're not beyond the reach of the gospel of the grace of God. Our children are moldable, pliable creatures. They also come from the womb as either boys or girls, period. How many, how many of you guys are going to get my head chopped off for this one? How many of you ladies shop at Ulta? I'm not saying don't shop there, but they're promoting a particular way to help transgender. I don't know what you, boys that are, think they're girls. Do their makeup. They're targeting that that audience. Our children come from the womb as either boys or girls, period. It's true enough that sin has affected everything in the created world. In the same way that sin inclines one person to be especially selfish, and another to be easily prone to anger, and another to have a particular bent toward lying, and those inclinations need to be fought against and resisted. In much the same way, sin has twisted the natural desires and inclinations of some boys to be drawn to other boys, girls to be drawn to girls, and some boys to wish they were girls, and girls to wish they were boys. Those are unnatural desires, and they're a result of the fall, because sin has twisted everything. 
to give in to those desires and inclinations is no less sinful than to give in to the inclination to lie, cheat, steal, or lose your temper. Sin is sin is sin. And these passages that have to do with homosexuality, for example, are as much in the Bible as Genesis 1.1 or John 3.16. We don't, we don't take those pages out of our Bible because the culture says that's old-fashioned, out-of-date, and cruel and heartless. No. To attempt to change your birth gender is an affront to the creative purpose of God. He did not make a mistake when he formed each one of us in our mother's wombs. They come out of the womb, boys or girls, period. But should you as a parent find yourself facing those kinds of issues with your child, there's a lot of help to be had. And let me just say that you don't stop loving your child when they lie or when they disrespect your parental authority or when they behave in a very selfish way, right? Nor should we withhold our love from our son or daughter who is confused about who they are and the way God made them and what their desires are. Let me encourage you, if you're wrestling with those issues with your children, to check out the website for Focus on the Family. They have a ton of material available designed for help with parents who are wrestling with these issues with their children. So please take advantage of... uh, Just go to their website, put in gender identity issues. If your kids are wrestling with that, and we, we must not be so naive as to think that none of the kids at Heritage Baptist Church will ever wrestle with that because they already have. And they will. So let's be prepared to help them. Um, that's, that's, those are snapshots of some of the stuff on folks on the family's website. And please take advantage of that material if that is a particular need for you. Okay, um, our last point, and we'll take this up next time, is that it's what you've all been waiting for. Our children are sinners. (laughs) And yes, they are. And guess where they got it? My boys got it from me. And I got it from my dad, and and we got it from Adam. That's not fair that we got it from Adam. If I'd have been there, don't go down that road. (laughs) And if it's not fair that I got that from Adam, then it's not fair that I get anything from Jesus either. Principle of representation is true in all of society, in all of life. It's the way God made the world. If Adam's not my representative, if I reject that, then Jesus is not going to be my representative either. Okay, so yes, our children are sinners, and we'll chase that uh, next time. Let's pray together. Lord, help us to digest all these things we've been talking about and to see our children for who you made them to be. They are, they are image bearers of God. They're moldable, pliable, teachable children. They're boys or girls. Thank you.
for putting them into our hands. Help us to raise them well for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.